Shifting borders. Tagir al hududi. Fashibene grenzen. Bedalte simae. Deishen sinelar. Welcome to Shifting Borders. Tvirushise grenitse. Fronteras movidizas. Bienjie juani. Badri sarhedo. Tohu biktigal. A podcast series by Princeton University students about how the forces of nationalism and identity shape people around the world. I'm series host Luke Mauer. And over the next five episodes, I'll be introducing you to Princeton classmates who have reported and produced stories that include the weaponization of headscarves, the erasure of inconvenient history, and the awkward dance of adjustment between refugees and the societies taking them in. Today's episode, episode two, is called Home is Where the Heart Is. I'll hand the mic over to the hosts for this episode, Anna Lubarskaya and Sophie Singletary, for more. Thanks, Luke. I'm Anna Lubarsko. And I'm Sophie Singletary. Welcome to episode two of Shifting Borders. It's about the elements we need to build a home. Things like family, friendship, community, sanctuary. And building a home sometimes means you have to leave home. In some places, it's almost expected of young men who must financially support their relatives. The journey is hard enough. And any newcomer also has to face the same thing, being known as the foreigner. I've actually got some personal insight into that. Oh, tell me more. You grew up in Norway, is that right? Yes. My parents both grew up in the Soviet Union, but I was born and raised in Norway. So neither of your parents are from Norway. Did that make you feel any less Norwegian? I think, in general, I felt like I was welcomed well in Norway, but there were times now and then where I was very aware of the fact that I didn't come from the same kind of household as everyone else. Do you remember any specific instances when you felt you stood out? I remember really well going on ski trips with my elementary school. And all the kids would have their own skis, because everyone in Norway knows how to ski. But most people in Norway have, like, waxed skis. So depending on the moisture in the snow and the weather, they'll know what kind of wax to put under their skis to make them go faster. And my family didn't have that, because we didn't know how to deal with the wax. So we had unwaxed skis. And I remember feeling self-conscious about that. Oh, that's so interesting. What made them so different? So when you have waxed skis, like most people do, you just kind of hear them glide across the snow, like kind of the sounds you would expect. But when you have unwaxed skis, there's also an additional very strange sound, which sounds almost like a wind or a buzzing sound of some sort. You seem to be acutely aware of who's foreign and who's not through the different sounds of the skis. Do you think everyone else notices it as well? At that time, I definitely did. Now, looking back, I think I was probably hyper-aware of the sound. I don't think most people who are skiing are always thinking about the sounds of the skis passing them. But as a child, I definitely couldn't get the lack of wax under my skis out of my head. Ah, uh, Wax. That brings me back to when I spent a year in Senegal and wax clothes is all we wore. Wax clothes? How does that work? So when I first arrived in Senegal, uh, the homestay family I was with said, you know, since you're living in Senegal, you'll dress like your Senegalese. And so they took me to the uh, market and we got some wax fabric, which is this thick, very stiff uh, type of fabric. Um, and then you go to the tailor and have them make dresses and skirts and all of that. So when I lived in Senegal, wax clothes is all I wore. 
So what brought you to Senegal in the first place? So I went on uh, Princeton's Bridge Year program, which is their gap year program. Um, and I lived with a homestay family and taught English at an elementary school there. And I still keep in touch with my family to this day. Besides the wax clothes, was it a comfortable adjustment? Well, I mean, there's the obvious reality that as a white American living in Senegal, um, I think I stood out inevitably just because of my race. Um, but there was also the assumption that since I was white living in Senegal, um, which was previously a French colony, that there was the assumption that I was French. Um, so it was also interesting to be an American living in Senegal in that way, too. Oh, interesting. So did you learn any French? Well, I actually, um, I learned the local language, a language called Wolof. Um, and I think I'm incredibly glad to have learned Wolof because it's really how the Senegalese people communicate, even though French is the national language. Um, and I think the community, the Senegalese community around me embraced me even more um, just in learning Wolof as opposed to French, which is what most non-Senegalese people learn or at least speak while they're in Senegal. But what if you learn the language fluently, you learn all the customs, and it's still not enough? This is rarely an issue for college students, who are usually privileged and have a stable home to return to. But it's something refugees face all the time. And that brings us to the first story in today's episode. It's about a refugee who is determined to adapt to her new home in Norway, where she has sought asylum. And it's also about her teenage friends in Norway, who love her so much that they rallied an entire country to keep her from being deported. Right, Taiba Abbasi. She's a refugee whose family fled Afghanistan for Iran before she was born. The family faced persecution in Iran and fled again to Europe. They ended up in Norway. Taiba Abbasi became well-known after the Norwegian government tried to deport her and her family in 2017. Thousands of students protested the decision. That sounds intense. What happened? They turned Taiba Abbasi's name into a rallying cry for safe and humane asylum in Norway. I had joined those protests, but didn't know Taiba personally. This all takes place in your hometown. Yes, that's right. It all happened in Trondheim, Norway, which is where I am right now. I wanted to find out more about her and why so many Norwegians were moved by her story. I met Taiba Abbasi in a coffee shop in central Trondheim. It's one of the most popular places for locals. The cappuccinos and lattes always have latte art hearts on the top. This time, Taiba's cappuccino had a duck. Taiba is confident and magnetic. She grew up as an Afghan refugee in Iran. She tells me about her childhood best friends, three other Afghan girls. Sometimes they would complain that Taiba was too bossy. But that take charge attitude often came in handy, especially when Iranians would pick on Afghan refugees. One day, her friend Rihanna came to Taiba's house in tears. I asked her, what happened, Rihanna? And she told me that the boy who lived next door to us called her names. Taiba was not going to let this insult pass unnoticed. I said, okay, 
I'm going to get dressed and we are going to go outside. I wasn't going to fight him or anything, but I went and told him that it wasn't okay. We are human and you are human and this is wrong. He was only two or three years older than us. He just kind of silently stood there. Afghans had known for years that Iranians did not want them in their country. Last year, Fazi Kufi, deputy speaker of the Afghan parliament, told France 24 that according to international refugee law, there should be legal avenues for Afghans to claim refugee status. But with the Islamic Republic of Iran, Afghan refugees do not have that status. So they always are deprived of the um, access to education and a legal status. And I think that puts them sometimes in extremely difficult situation. Taiba's mother saw no future for her children. She decided to take them to Norway, which she had heard was a good place to live. And most importantly, there would be access to education. We couldn't fly. That wasn't allowed. I just remember being told, we have to be quiet, we have to be careful, we can't make any sounds. We would travel all night. We traveled through Iran to Turkey, where we were for a couple of nights before we went to Greece. The family had decided that it was safer to split up and meet in Norway. Taiba traveled with her older brother. They finally arrived in Norway on July 13, 2012, after months of crossing borders. Taiba was 13 and her brother Yasin was 15. They were taken to a child care center as unaccompanied minors. The center offered Norwegian courses every day, and Taiba jumped at the opportunity to learn the language. Soon, she even had a favorite Norwegian phrase. What's this thing called? The staff at the center would reply, This is talarken, plate. This is a gloss, glass. Eventually, I wouldn't even ask. They would tell me, Taibet, this is ketchup. And everyone would laugh. After a couple of weeks, Taiba had her second immigration interview. A Persian translator that she had met on her first day was back. You know what I said to him? Actually, I didn't even talk to the interpreter. I said directly to the interviewer, I don't need an interpreter anymore. I understand everything you're saying and I can speak for myself. Her brother said she was rude to insist that she should just let the interpreter translate. But why, if I can speak Norwegian? Learning to speak Norwegian was crucial to Taiba. She points out to me that integration isn't about assimilating. It's not about looking like everyone else. Instead, it's about keeping your culture while adapting to your surroundings. I can't walk outside and speak Persian to a Norwegian person. I have to know the language. Taiba brought her strong sense of identity with her as she started middle school at the end of the summer. This impressed Ingrid Jepsen Vege who had been paired up with Taiba to present on one of Norway's political parties. We started talking about not only our presentation, but I remember religion coming up early. Her being a Muslim, she talked about some of her traditions and from her upbringing in Iran and culture and Afghan upbringing. The girls clicked instantly. They started going to each other's houses for dinner and got to know each other's families. Despite their different backgrounds, Ingrid noticed that the girls were surprisingly similar. We've had so much in common in our interests. I just really felt she was a girl just like me. Then, in 2014, Ingrid became aware of a circumstance which separated the two girls. She noticed Taiba was sad one day at school. And Ingrid came over and asked, What's wrong, honey? And then I told her that I got a letter from the government and that I don't understand what it says because the language is so difficult. Ingrid couldn't understand the bureaucratic language of the letter either. So the girls asked the Norwegian teacher for help. And I really remember him calling us into like a group 
room, feeding us and explaining us that Taiba and her family was didn't have their permission to stay in Norway anymore. The letter launched a long, drawn-out legal battle for Taiba and her family. In middle school during breaks, my classmates would sit and talk about, like, reality shows. And I would sit and Google Norwegian immigration laws. That's not something I expected to do in my life in Norway, but I had to. I was going to learn everything which concerned me. I think I know like half of Norwegian refugee laws now. Taiba's friends also came in to help. Ingrid remembers a letter that she had sat down to write with Taiba and another friend. They gave it to the lawyers in the hope that it would help Taiba's case. You kind of tell them how well integrated Taiba was in her class and how well she spoke Norwegian. And this is how the movement to support the Abbasi family begins. Students and their parents, teachers, and coaches come together to raise money for Taiba's court costs, and her story reaches the local press. But the government was not budging. They declined the family's asylum application. They were just like, with this letter saying how well Taiba is integrated and how well she speaks the language, we're sure that she will be able to integrate herself well in Afghanistan. So it was kind of used against us, that little note that we wrote. Fast forward to high school, which Taiba began in 2015. Her family was still fighting for asylum in Norway. But more Norwegians were hearing about her story. Muna Alfare was the student council leader at Taiba's high school at the time. She heard about Taiba from her younger brother. His teacher had come into class crying, and the class had asked why. And then she told the students Taiba's story, and I get very angry. Muna's brother and his classmates asked her for help. And they was like, oh, we have to do something. Oh, you have to help us. And I was like, okay, okay, stop. Just what is going on? And then they explained to me, and they told me her story. And then I was like, okay, we have to do a demonstration. Muna's first instinct was to tell the students to boycott their classes. Okay, if Taiba can go to school, then we aren't going to school either. And we are not going to classes. And we're going to stay outside in the cafeteria and just demonstrate why not not joining the classes. A teacher told her to think big. Why demonstrate inside the school when everyone in school wanted Taiba to stay? He also urged Mona to ask Taiba for permission to protest. Mona and her brother asked around until they found Taiba. Taiba, we, we have heard your story and we don't think it's okay. We want to make a demonstration for you and your family. Is that okay by you? And she began to cry. <laughs> everyone actually began to cry. Mona and the student council started planning the protest right away. Students were going to gather in the center of Trondheim. They tried to think of slogans in Norwegian. But then we were like, why are we doing this? Why are we doing this in Norwegian? We want this to be like international. We want the whole world to see this, so we have to make it in English. And then it was Abbasi stays because they were going to stay. <laughs> they weren't going anyway. They were home. So why there was no need for them to leave. Word spread fast. The student council created a Facebook event and invited their friends, who then invited their friends, and so on. I went home, it was like some of 100 people. So it was thousands. And <laughs> some hours later, it was like 4,000. The next day, it was 10,000. So like we made this snowball and it just kept rolling. The day before, it was 17,000 people who had saw the arrangement and press interested. And then we get the attention of the media. 
Muna says the widespread response surprised members of the government. I also think they were impressed uh, that, uh, wow, uh, where did this come from? And then that is a good thing that uh, some students like find this case they really want to fight for. They were not the only ones who were impressed. The story caught the attention of Kristin Hulos-Sunde, who was creative manager at Amnesty International. Sunde reposted a picture from the student protest, a poster that said, Home is where the heart is. Home is where the heart is. And my heart is anywhere you are. So we reposted that on our own channels, and that got like three times as much engagement as our posts were getting at the time. And so we knew that that was something that clearly resonated and that people cared about. Sunde, who herself grew up in Norway before moving to London, had flown to Trondheim with a media team to meet the teenagers. It was really refreshing to see all the energy behind the campaign. But at the same time, it was, you know, I was quite shocked to see after many years abroad how much attitudes to migration had hardened. Indeed, Taiba's story hadn't resonated with everyone. Sievert Björnstad, a member of parliament from Trondheim, represents Norway's Progress Party, which is the harshest on immigration. He tells NRK, the Norwegian Public Broadcasting Corporation, that laws can't have exceptions. Of course, it's never easy in cases where the family has been in Norway for a long time, but the law still applies, even in difficult situations. In this case, the decision is made, and the family was notified years ago. Therefore, they must leave the country. In 2019, Taiba and her family were forcibly deported. Trondheim sprung out in protest. Turid Gineusen, a professional soccer player for Trondheim's team Rosenborg, had a jersey made that said Abassi instead of Rigineusen. Also, with Amnesty's involvement, the whole world started paying attention. Young people in the US, Kenya, Nepal, France, and many other countries showed support for Taiba and her family. They could see, you know, for once it's a big, rich northern nation that is being put in the spotlight because of the way that they do human rights. That's Kirsten Sunde again. She says that the Abbasi Stays movement is about more than the way a government handles asylum seekers. Actually, there's a whole other story that it needs to be told about communities making room for families like Taibais, that it is possible for them to integrate into a new society very successfully with the right support, and that they will then go on to make their own contribution to society, which in the end means everyone benefits. The Abbasi family never made it to Afghanistan. Amnesty lobbied the Afghan government to reject them. The mother's poor health and the lack of a male provider were the reasons cited to refuse entry. They were returned to Norway a couple of days after their departure to continue their fight for asylum. Because Taiba's mother had been too sick to fly commercially, the government sponsored private flights to get the family out of the country. Ingrid was shocked at the measures that were taken to deport her friend. The Norwegian government has spent millions of kroners, not kidding, on these, like, five people. The police immigration unit estimated at least 3 million kroner, that's about 350,000 US dollars, were spent on deporting the family. And that's just so insane to me how they've spent all this money, all this energy trying to kick them out. Meanwhile, Taiba's life was in limbo. She tells me about a political science exam she took that same year. 
She was required to present an ID, but because her asylum case was still open, she didn't have one. I sat in the middle with a girl to my left and a boy to my right. The girl put out her driver's license, and the guy had put out a bank card or something like that. I could almost hear my heartbeat. I thought, no, I won't be able to take this exam. I kept telling myself, just give up. It won't work. Just give up, type. The proctor, a woman who looked like she was in her late 50s, told her to write down her name. They could sort out the ID issue after the exam. For the whole exam, I sat with my fingers crossed. I went to the bathroom like 10 times. I was so stressed. The exam lasted for five hours. Taiba waited for everyone else to leave before handing her test to the proctor. I started telling her, I can't just turn this in. I don't have any ID. She patted me on the shoulder. You know, I recognize you from the very start. And all the Tronic supports you. You can turn this, this exam. No problem. Taiba cried happy tears on the bus home. It was so special, both happy and painful. Painful in the sense that I didn't have something everyone had. No one else had to think about their ID, and there I was stressing about it. But it was happy in the sense that I got that support. I will never forget that feeling. Home is where the heart is, and my heart is anywhere you are, anywhere Taiba and her siblings were finally granted asylum last year. Her mother is still waiting. But Taiba is exhausted from struggling to stay in Norway. Ingrid says the fight has changed her friend. There's a side to her that um, is not as pure and hopeful uh, as she was when I met her, uh, which is quite sad to witness, but I guess that happens to all of us when we grow up, that we kind of understand some things that we didn't earlier. That reminds me of something Taiba told me when I first asked her about her childhood. She noted how much simpler it was. There were problems, but they were so clear that we didn't have a choice to do anything about it, to fight it. Things were decided by a higher power. That was something I understood ever since I was seven or eight. That we are refugees. That's who we are. And we are not to talk. We won't be heard. Even if I were to fight as hard as I did in Norway, for as long, nothing would happen. Except maybe I would be punished. It was very straightforward. You just had to live with it. Ingrid says most of us would have given up a long time ago. But not Taiba. She never accepts injustice, and she has learned a lot fighting it. She hopes to study medicine or social work, anything that will help her help others. Maybe I'm a rolling stone Who won't amount to But everything that I Wow, that's a fascinating story. It seems like the Norwegian community really embraced Taiba, and she them, even though the government was not as welcoming. I'm very impressed by how hard she worked to learn Norwegian. Right? You must know all about learning a completely new language. Wolof, my other language. Speaking in Wolof with my Senegalese family is how I found out about our next story. My family there talked a lot about male relatives having to leave Senegal for Europe to find work. How long do they stay? Sometimes they stay for years. 
on their own, separated from their wives, kids, from their mothers and sisters. That sounds lonely. It is. I spoke via WhatsApp to a couple of guys related to my host family. They now live in Spain, and their paychecks support entire families in Senegal. So they had to leave home so their families could have homes. Sophie, take us there. The sea that laps onto the southern coast of Senegal stretches into crests of pale gray waves as far as the eye can see. The waves draw international surfers by day. By night, those waves carry small fishing boats called P-dogs into the dark, crashing water. Those boats are crammed, not with fishermen, but with sons and husbands and fathers desperate to work. They're trying to reach Spain's Canary Islands, hundreds of miles away. It's a route so deadly that the Senegalese call it Barça Wala Barça, which means Barcelona or die in the Wolof language. Bai Gorambai boarded a pirog along with 75 other men three years ago when he was 25. My motivation for leaving for Spain was so that I could have a house for my family and make them comfortable. I also saw other guys my age that had gone to Europe and were able to make their families comfortable. My dad had a job at a hotel in Spain, and it was more than my salary as a driver in Senegal. The journey to Europe to search for work is almost a rite of passage for young Senegalese men who are expected to support at least a dozen family members. Senegal's economy is hurting. Climate change has hit the country's crucial fishing and agriculture industries. Jobs are scarce, and even if you find one, the minimum wage is just $2 an hour. My wife and my family relies on me for food and the kids' school expenses. Money is always tight. There is not a lot of work. Even for people who went to school, I was making enough money to survive, but not enough money to be able to have some kind of decency. Getting to Spain legally is almost impossible. The application process for asylum is long and often ends in rejection. According to a Voice of America report, only 5% of those who apply for asylum from African countries are successful. But there are ways around the system. Baigora's father, Indigal, went to Spain on a tourist visa in 1996. After that visa expired, he worked under the table until he eventually received legal residency. In 2016, Baigora's older brother, Mamshech, followed a similar path after securing a tourist visa to visit his father in Barcelona. He paid for his flight with donations from neighbors in Yoff, a small community in Senegal's capital, Dakar. Yoff helped me get enough money to buy a ticket to Spain and I was ready to go. But when I got on a plane, I was crying the whole way. I didn't know anything about Spain. I had no idea about Barcelona. I had to change to another life. Mom Sheikh's dad helped him get a job at the Barcelona hotel where he worked. After two years of steady work, Spain granted Mom Sheikh residency. His younger brother, Baigora, could not secure a tourist visa, which is why he turned to the sea. The journey to Spain by sea is dangerous. Baigora's friend, Sheikh Sam, had already tried to cross twice. 
Sheikh Sam explains this one time. The boat he was in got dangerously lost. We ran out of water, so a boat came to help. Our GPS told us we were in Spain. The boat people told us that we had drifted. We were somewhere in the middle of the ocean. The longer the trip lasts, the more likely the people on board will run out of food and water. The heat is blistering and the waves are colossal, a treacherous combination. A Coast Guard vessel picked up Sheikh Sam's pirog, but other Senegalese aren't so lucky. The waves often throw passengers off the pirogs. Other boats break apart. In just the last year, the International Organization for Migration has confirmed 2,300 missing or dead migrants on this route. Baigora is grateful he survived. He sees himself as lucky because he spent eight days of discomfort at sea. We had to sleep wherever we could and for the bathroom. We had to go in a 10-liter plastic bottle and no shower for a whole trip. The boat landed on the southern tip of Spain in a region called Malaga. A family member of one of the guys on the boat lived in the area and arrived in a van to pick them up. Knowing he had to head north to Barcelona, Baigora and nearly a dozen others borrowed the van and piled in. Driving north, they arrived in Barcelona 12 hours later. In Barcelona, Baigora met up with his father and immediately started doing odd jobs at the hotel. There's a sizable Senegalese community in Barcelona but Baigora still felt uneasy. It was a mixture of good and bad. The buildings were big and the streets were clean. But at the same time, I could feel that people in Spain did not always have good feelings towards me. He couldn't find steady work even at the hotel because he was undocumented and didn't speak Spanish. He was also worried about being kicked out. Senegal and Spain signed a deportation agreement in 2006. So he coped by throwing himself into seasonal work. His older brother, Mamsher, turned to someone he calls a social coach to adjust. Her name is Benny Lopez, and she's actually a social worker. Before the COVID confinement, I think we saw each other almost every weekend. What we do is share culture and share moments. It's good that in the end you learn languages, you learn culture. He teaches me Senegalese dance and I teach Spanish culture. And Benny has been busier than ever. Arrivals from West Africa to Spain's Canary Islands increased 750% last year. In the end, if there is a need, people will migrate. Because the most important thing is to survive. I caught up recently with Baigora. It was the start of Ramadan, the largest Muslim holiday. We speak in Wolof, a native language of Senegal. He tells me he's been fasting and that he also works six days a week at a slaughterhouse, killing and dismembering pigs. Tough work for a Muslim. But he shrugs it off. I respect the rules in Spain. I cross the street when I should and stuff like that. 
but I'm still culturally Senegalese. And most people respect me and my culture. When I tell people I'm fasting, they don't bother me. And at times, they even offer water and gifts. Sure. Sometimes the Spaniards shorten his name to Bai, which translates into dad in Wolof. No worries, he says. It doesn't bother me. I'm in a foreign country for work, so I have to accept that at least. And Baigora recently got some good news. He finally received residency in Spain, three years after he arrived. He's now free to visit the home where his heart still is, Senegal. He's saying, if I could go back tomorrow, I would. But he can't, at least not anytime soon. Like so many other Senegalese men in Spain, he sends nearly all his earnings back home to his family. at this point, do you have any plan to go back to Senegal? There's nothing I'd love more than being back in my wax clothes with my family in Senegal. And what about Baigora and Mam Cher? As Baigora said, he'd go back tomorrow if he could. Hopefully one day we can all be there together, eating the best version of fish and rice, the Senegalese way. This episode of Shifting Borders, titled Home is Where the Heart Is, was reported by me, Anna Lubarska. And me, Sophie Singletary. We'd like to thank a few people for helping us with this episode. In my story, that would be Baigora, Mam Sheikh, Sheikh Sam, and Benny Lopez. My gratitude to my entire Senegalese family and their continued love and hospitality, even via WhatsApp. I'd also like to thank Mamadou Mbai, Pop Jop, and Ma Mornjai for providing voiceovers in this episode. Also to India Stevenson. I'd like to thank Kaiba Ingerdan Muna for speaking with me. Also thank you to Maria Serrano and Danny Wells, as well as Kristin Hulosunda from Amnesty International. Thanks also to Tyra Beatty and Harrison Snowden for helping with voiceovers. Music in this episode by Elvis Presley, Abin Gana Job, Chris Sana, Mark Burguera, and Sama. Archive audio from Norwegian Broadcasting Corporation, France 24, and Trondheim 24. Thanks for listening today. Here's series host Luke Moore for the final credits. Thanks, Anna and Sophie. Shifting Borders is a podcast series created by the students of Princeton University's Spring 2021 International Journalism class. Our supervising producer is Joanna Kakissis, a Spring 2021 visiting Ferris professor of journalism. Our assistant producer is Francesca Block. An associate of Hindenburg Systems mixed our episodes, with additional mixing by Francesca Block on episodes 3, 4, and 5. The McGraw Center's Ben Johnston helped us get this series online and onto a podcast platform. Juliana Wojtenko designed the podcast artwork. Eric Sutherland composed Supercontinental, which we used as the Shifting Borders theme music. Special thanks to Joe Stevens, Margot Bresnan, and Deborah Amos of the Princeton Journalism Program, as well as Kathleen Crown of the Humanities Council, for supporting student-driven projects like these. Even during a pandemic, 
when we had to do nearly all of our reporting remotely. We would also like to thank the many exceptional journalists from around the world who spoke to our class via Zoom this semester, and whose words of advice helped shape our stories. They include Ada Peralta, Lulu Garcia-Navarro, Mark Lowen, Daniel Estrin, Martha Wexler, Sally Hayden, Daniel Trilling, Riham Alcusa, Andras Peto, Will Dobson, Jess Jang, and Derek Arthur. Our next episode, episode three, is called Careless Memories. It's about nationalists revising the past to influence the present and future. The episode's host is Francesca Block. I'm Luke Maurer. Thanks for listening.